It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, it's your host Edward Ford and welcome to the Growth of Podcast, the show about all things B2B SaaS marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Advanced B2B, the growth marketing agency that helps B2B SaaS businesses generate sustainable revenue growth through marketing. So if you're looking for an agency partner who will help you get measurable results from your marketing, then check out advancedb2b.com for more info. Now joining us today on the show is Mike McDermott, co-founder, former CEO and board chair of FreshBooks. And in this episode, we're talking about how to not kill your SaaS business. Mike went from accidental SaaS founder to CEO of a SaaS company with over 24 million users. And he's learned a lot of lessons along the way since FreshBooks was founded back in 2003. In this episode, Mike talks about how he accidentally founded a SaaS company, why moving too fast almost killed the company early on, why he underestimated word of mouth as a growth driver, why raising at the wrong time can be super dangerous, and we also hear the counterintuitive yet genius idea of why Mike decided to start a competitor company to FreshBooks called Billspring. Now there's all this and there's a whole lot more on episode number 71 of the Growth of Podcast with Mike McDermott, co-founder, former CEO and board chair of FreshBooks. Welcome to another episode of the Growth of Podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome Mike McDermott to the show, who is co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth of Podcast. Thanks for having me, Edward. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one with some seriously important lessons as you've gone from accidental founder to CEO of a SaaS company with over 24 million users, which is quite amazing. And you'll be sharing your stories and lessons on how to not kill your SaaS business, which I think is something you've almost done about seven times, if I recall correctly. But before we jump into that, I would love to kick things off with hearing how you accidentally founded a SaaS company. Well, the, you know, it's a, it's a classic story. It's a, a scratch your own itch kind of story. So I was running a, a marketing firm. Um, I called it a design firm because uh, we were helping people design their websites, their newsletters, their logos, and they're kind of the marketing collateral, if you will. Um, so it was talked about as a design firm, but I was running that small firm. I was working from home. This is you know, sort of early 2000s. And I accidentally saved over an invoice. I was using Word and Excel to build my clients and uh, prepare the documents to, and I'd invoice them once, once it was time uh, by, by email. And I, I just said, Hey, I, I saved over that voice. And I was, I was so frustrated with the way I was doing it. I was just like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So, so I built something <clears throat> and I really just built it for myself so that I could, I could build my clients. And it turned out my clients really liked it. Uh, and so pretty quickly we were like, Hey, I wonder who else could use something like this. And so uh, you know, we've learned a whole bunch of lessons along the way in terms of marketing because we started out and we were cloud before cloud. So <laughs> there was no category to describe what we were doing. People were buying boxes, of, you know, CDs on software and installing them on their computers when we got going. And um, and so, we've you know, we've had to learn about categories and, and we were very, uh, you know, we were sort of pre-internet marketing almost. And that's because I grew up in... Uh, the cottage industry of, of like SEO and things like that, you know, before Google AdWords and Overture out of Yahoo were, were even started. So that was kind of our, 
our petri dish to learn about customer acquisition and help the business get going. Uh, and so we've just we've just seen a ton of things over the years, and we were always a, a touchless demand generated business until recent times. We've got a sales motion going as well. So so I can I can speak about uh, you know all of those things and, and more. And uh, it's been a heck of a journey, you know, to now be. Uh, sort of one of the world's leading accounting software platforms. We're global with customers in 100 countries. And and, and frankly, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like our largest segment of customers is marketing agencies and firms. So if anybody out there is, is still using Word or Excel or they're using accounting software they find intimidating and not built for them, uh, you know, do go ahead and check out FreshBooks. We're, we're built for owners. It's super easy to use. And, and, and uh, the thing that makes us special is we're built for for owners, but specifically owners who are service-based in nature, so not doing retail and not doing, you know, hardcore e-commerce uh, exclusively. It's it's really people who who you know, who have clients they bill and charge in an ongoing relationship. Anyhow, that's a that's a bit of a primer about me and the business and some of the lessons we learned along the way. Yeah, that's incredible. And you spent, I think it was over three years working out of your parents' basement to grow FreshBooks. And you spoke earlier about operating in a pre-Google Ads uh, paid acquisition world. So thinking back to the early days, how did you get that traction and acquire your first customers? <clears throat> so we, uh, when we, I mean, I'll just very simply, when we got going, uh, I, I knew something about SEO effectively. Uh, organic search engine marketing and we were helping a lot of customers with that so the design agency we'd build the website but you know my thing you know I, I loved internet marketing from the get-go I was a business school student <clears throat> I started building websites for myself first and asking the question like what the heck is the point of having a website if people don't show up to it and then I started asking myself well what's the heck of doing it if the people you, know, you can get a lot of traffic but sometimes it's not super qualified so what's the point unless they are the people who you want to show up and then once I started getting the people I wanted to show up, I was like, well, what's the heck of having a website and having people show up if they don't do what you want and convert? And that led me into uh, my, my design firm actually turned into basically like a, what I call conversion consulting. But, you know, what is now pretty common with a lot of websites doing split testing and A-B testing and all this stuff. So this is we were like, you know, think 2002 helping people do those kinds of things. Um, so that was that was the early days. And so specific to your question of how did we get going? Like, that's what I was helping other people do. And so I, I saved over the invoice in 2003. It took us a while to get to market because we were doing it on the side. And a lot of the technologies people used to build web applications, they didn't exist. So we launched in in May 2004. And between those times, when we knew we were going to launch, we were building the website. We actually put up a landing page and started doing link building <laughs> to get organic search there before we even launched the company. And so you were listing in directories and all the stuff that you did back then, which is pretty old school, but, but that's how we, we kind of started getting things going. And then we launched and we, we kind of uh, had some partners who put up links on their websites and that helped as well. And then, uh, and then we started buying like $30 ads and email newsletters to, to, frankly, like marketers and people who we were, you know, the communities I participated in. So it was a very, um, it was a very much continue to serve ourselves, go find other people like us in the communities we already knew approach. Over time, it started to evolve. And uh, we got into things like blogging, which was really early as well. I didn't know the first thing about it, but we kind of got into, I guess, 
that form of social media before, you know, this was before Twitter or Facebook or, you know, LinkedIn existed. We were out there, um, you know, sort of blogging and, and uh, uh, checking out Technorati and I'm, I'm really dating myself with some of this stuff. But I, I think it was a really good proving ground to understand, hey, what content matters? You know, how does the social web work with people pointing links to people and, and how, you know, frankly, you can go buy a lot of advertising, but the earned media of a link on a blog post is way more powerful, frankly, than an article in a, an important newspaper. That, that was kind of a mind-blowing moment. Like, hey, a blog link is more valuable than national news coverage. We're based in Canada. In, in, in Canada, I, I mean, it's kind of a stunning, stunning revelation. And it's like, okay, well, how do you continue to focus on your community and earn more of those links? And, and um, anyhow, so that that is, you know, that's a big part of how we got going. And also, I'll add in, um, we did get into live events, and with anything that we did, we always tried to be different. Basically, uh, we recognized we had less money. And we knew, you know, frankly, a lot, a lot less about marketing in a lot of ways because I was, uh, I, I was kind of a tactical internet marketer. I didn't, I didn't grow up in a, a company that had like a, uh, you know, packaged goods background around branding and all this stuff. But when we would go to a conference or we got out into the world, we always tried to just find a way to be interesting. So if we went to a conference, our objective at the conference was to have everybody talking about us when we left. And so it could be a number of things. I think of one sort of fun example, and this was in our later years where, you know, we were at a conference in, in New Orleans and we actually hired a marching band <laughs> to walk through like the common areas of the, uh, of the conference. Uh, and uh, they were kind of wearing fresh book swag and all this stuff, but it's like, you can't miss that, right? <laughs> uh, and so you kind of prepare all these, these stunts along the way to just do everything you can to get people's attention and make them aware uh, of you. Uh, and so that was, uh, I don't know, that gives you a flavor for the, the breadth of marketing related things that we did uh, just to try and get the word out uh, and get people's attention in the early days. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And I think everyone is going to be hiring a marching band for the first conference they attend after the pandemic is over and everyone can get back face to face. But I think one of the really interesting things as well from that is that the actual tactics and channels haven't really changed since you guys started. Of course, you had first mover advantage and you've been doing this for a long time but really it's all about the sort of fundamentals of understanding your customer and getting in the places where they are so super interesting to hear and kind of moving to the core of this episode you've listed several ways that you almost killed your own SaaS business over the years and want to pick a few of those to dig into now on this episode and one I'd like to start with is quite interesting as that was moving faster than you did now a lot of startups have this move fast and break things mentality. So why did moving fast almost kill FreshBooks? Yeah, so I think that blog post, just to put it in context, I think I wrote it, you know, seven ways I almost killed FreshBooks in like 2006 or something like this. Uh, so just when we were getting going. And, um, you know, by the way, all the things in there are, are true and, and still relevant for anybody starting a company. And so when you think about, when I take myself back to that time, and I think the quote is, you know, um, almost killed us by moving, like, I guess it was moving faster or thinking we had to move faster than we actually did. And so when you're in a company, like when you're in your parents' basement for three and a half years and your competition is a company that is public and has a market capitalization of, I don't know how many tens of billions of dollars and has market share of like 80%, 
uh, you, you start to you start to say to yourself, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get killed, <laughs> right? It, it, it's sort of a paranoid mindset. And again, we were doing all these things we could to get the word out and to stay alive and, and keep things afloat and manage the expenses and all the things you do when you're, when you're a startup and you're in a really precarious kind of position. And so one of the things um, that um, I used to just think we were always two quarters away from somebody sort of snuffing the business out, which is, uh, you know, it doesn't paint a pretty picture, but it gives you a window into the mindset. And the truth was, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times just going heads down and sticking with something over a long period of time is better than just thinking you have to do everything now and immediately. And I think startup culture confuses that. In fact, I'm the, the founder and chair of another company that I've been involved with for the past five years um, alongside FreshBooks. And we're looking at a thing right now where it's like, hey, what if we just focus and, you know, we're quiet and we progress and then pop up, you know, down the road? Like, it's not all about being out all the time, doing it faster, because then you're maybe educating the market or your competition or whatever it is. And so there's, there's a lot of um, goodness that can come from just being deliberate, you know, focusing on execution, serving your customers really well, um, that, you know, is a good thing to focus on just versus reacting and being terrified and doing things you think you should, because you're supposed to go faster, because that's what, you know, the article on TechCrunch or whoever says you're supposed to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And another thing that you did was underestimate word of mouth, which is a really incredible way to help grow your SaaS business. So, Two parts to this question, why did you underestimate word of mouth and how did you eventually get word of mouth firing later on down the line? Well, I think you largely have the answer to the second part with those things I talked about already, where we were always trying to be interesting and take a novel approach to things and serve our customers really well. And I'll give you some examples in a second. But, but as for the first part, uh, why did I underestimate it? Um, I... <clears throat> One of the things I love about marketing these days and certainly internet and digital marketing is everything's so measurable. You can run a test and it's like test and response. And, and you know, that is the math behind that. The measurement is um, sort of seductive. And it's like, oh, I want to take all of my dollars and put them over here because I can measure it and I know the costs and all this kind of stuff. And so that certainty uh, is a big deal. But certainly in the market that we serve, which is small business, one of the biggest drivers of, of growth and, and product selection is, you know, what an owner will hear from another owner. Like that's actually might be the most influential thing for them to try a new product or service is, is not, did they see an ad or you know, did they, you know, hear about it in the media? It's more, Hey, what are my, what are my friends saying? And so it's almost like consumer in that way, right? If you're, you're selling to enterprises, maybe it's what Gardner has to say that matters. But for small business owners, um, it's often just just what other owners had to say. And so you, you can't see that. You can't track it. You don't know what's happening. But we had the good fortune to have an advisor around us early in the company. And he um, he actually worked in all things. He was a marketing manager at like an oil and gas company, like Esso at one point was running, you know, helping in from headquarters, like run the various uh, uh, gas, whatever you call them, the gas pump stations, the gas stations. And he, he just said, something to me that really stuck, which is, listen, <clears throat> I, I just pick a vertical and be very focused there. And right when you think you've tapped out and you can't grow anymore, push through that wall and keep going. Because 
there's actually invariably more depth there and more opportunity than you realize. And so in our case, what that meant was we started buying ads for the, the marketers and what have you. And it really sort of swerved into, we, we really just for the first seven years of the company targeted web designers. And we, we got to them through, through like serving marketers and we got to them through like websites, like cool website pages. They went for inspiration and we got to them through pay-per-click ads, but that was the one vertical we went after. And when you start going after a vertical and trying to reach them, you realize, okay, I buy my ads like this. I go to these online properties and then it's like, okay, I'm going to go to these conferences. And you just have a very verticalized marketing effort that really never goes out of style. And what was interesting in our case is while we were targeting this one vertical, we were getting customers, you know, we were signing up lawyers, we were signing up IT folks, we were signing up all these other verticals who came across us for one reason or another. And we were signing up people in countries all over the world. We had paying customers in over a hundred countries. And so I, I think, um, you know, the lesson is if you go focus on one vertical and you do a good job for them, they're going to tell the people in that vertical, but they'll also start telling other people because they'll see applicability that's not just for them in a lot of cases. And that, that becomes really powerful. So you get concentrated in one vertical and you start to get a level of penetration and then that sort of builds out. And so, you know, even from those early efforts today, that's still, you know, those are still places where you get like the lion's share of our, um, of our customers today. And that's from, you know, over a decade ago of this starting to invest and staying very focused there. So, so that, uh, you know, gives you a, a bit of a sense of things. I think the other thing I'll just chip in is as a startup company, um, you know, I, I, I feel like you, if you think you're going to win because you have more budget to spend on, on Google ads, you're probably in real trouble long term. Uh, and so whether it's because your product's great and people want to talk about you or because your marketing's really interesting and people want to share and talk about you, I, I think that drive to sort of be interesting and be of high quality and serve your clients really well is is really really important because you know to make a channel like google pay-per-click go you have an unfair advantage if you also have a word of mouth engine that can help basically lower your average cost per customer uh, because they join and they tell somebody else or because somebody told them and then you're paying the pay-per-click ad to have them uh, find you after they go searching so uh, i hope that makes sense but that's that's kind of the way i think about some of it yeah absolutely i think that's super great to hear how you thought about word of mouth and Another way you said you can kill your SaaS company is raising at the wrong time, which is something you've learned. And there seems to be a thing in SaaS and startups that raising is wildly celebrated. But why can raising at the wrong time be so destructive to your SaaS business? I, uh, I, you know, I have some pretty contrarian views on, on fundraising um, relative to a lot of people these days. I think a lot of people have an idea, they want to get started, they raise the money so they can do the idea. And I, I'm a little more of the, hey, you need to know how you're going to return the capital <laughs> before you sort of take the capital, um, uh, which is a, a, a bit of a, a different way to do things. And that's, you know, for me, I just want to de-risk the relationship. And there's a lot of investors who are like, hey, it's risk money, you know, I'm not too worried about it. But but uh, anyway, so that that is my orientation. And so I think... Um, you know, to be, there's maybe even another way to say this. So timing's a factor, but it, it's like alignment with your capital. If you, I, I, we, we almost raised, and the reason I put that bullet in there was we almost raised $300,000 in the very early days of FreshBooks. And it would have been for like 30% of the company. 
And we actually tried to get it done. We didn't know what we were doing. This was an angel group. We were like the people, we wanted the money. We thought that's what you were supposed to do. Those were different times. But I will tell you this, if we had raised that capital, I don't think we'd be in business today. I think that would have set us down a certain path with a group of people who'd want investor returns that were not going to be coming anytime soon. And then we would have made the decisions because we had them involved with us and were interested in their considerations and looking after them. And we probably would have sold or, or done some pretty unnatural things because the business just hadn't developed enough yet. And so I think it's a little bit in this bucket of the speed thing before where, oh, the playbook, you know, TechCrunch says you have to just do everything faster. Well, you know, if you go and bring somebody onto your cap table, meaning you raise money and they become an equity holder in the shares of your company, um, that is now, you're now responsible, you know, not just for your employees, not just for yourself and other investors that you have, you're also now responsible for that investor. <laughs> and it becomes a lot more to manage and their expectations, you know, things may not go as planned. And so their expectations are changed and all, all these kinds of things. And so I would just say, there are times when it makes sense to bring on new capital partners. And there are times and reasons when it, it sort of doesn't. And I think it's important to know which you're at and why and just be deliberate and, and have it. And a lot of entrepreneurs just think they have something great and they really want the money and they haven't got to a place necessarily where they know that that's, it's not as simple as that. There's more to both sides of the coin and setting up the conditions to be successful with the right capital partners. And so we, we basically dodged a bullet by, by failing to secure financing from an early firm. They were great. I really liked them, but um, you know, it would have been the wrong thing. Plus, we would have diluted ourselves enormously, which would have been too bad. Yeah, for sure. And kind of following from this question, because now after years of bootstrapping, you actually raised $75 million for FreshBooks. So following from that previous question, why did you decide to take on funding? Well, so again, back to my contrarian points of view, um, we had sort of bootstrapped the business. We, we did raise a little angel money later uh, from some people who were more in technology versus kind of general business people. And, um, and we used that capital to go ahead and scale the business and progress it, you know, really for like 10 years and making, you know, millions of, I think we might've been like $10 million or something like this before we raised our first, you know, venture round. And, um, and that took patience and diligence and saying no and focus and execution and taking care of customers. So don't get me wrong, it was not easy, but, but we stayed focused. And, and I, I was always terrified of raising capital because I was afraid that and not so much losing control, control of the business, though I suppose that's you know, part of it, but I was really concerned about if, if I didn't have enough influence, what would happen to the customer and the customer experience? And this was the time when everyone was outsourcing everything. So people were outsourcing customer service to far-flung places like Dell. Dell went and outsourced a lot of their customer service to India to like save money. And you know the feedback was starting to come into Dell, like, hey, people, it's just not the same experience you used to offer. Uh, the the reps aren't as knowledgeable. You know, just all these kinds of things. And so I was afraid of showing up to a board meeting and having somebody tell me we're gonna we're gonna outsource service like like and i would be like what and felt like i'd have no no control over it so so basically i just i didn't know i didn't know a lot about venture i didn't know a lot about how this stuff worked and so i i wanted i ended up just taking time to learn about venture talk to lots of vcs take lots of calls to say no we're not interested 
and uh, and continue to work on the business and get it to a place where I thought, hey, we've de-risked the product, we've de-risked the market. I know how we can return capital for people because they want you know basically like a three to ten x return, and I can I felt like I could kind of see that. And then the last remaining thing for me was just you know we got this team in place, a management team that I was like, okay, now I feel like we can credibly scale the company. And then I was like, the only thing that was stopping us was capital. So I said, okay, let's go raise capital. And that, that was my process to get in there. People might say, I don't know what, maybe the conservative or whatever, but, uh, and I, it's not the path I would necessarily take now knowing a few more things, but I think it was the right thing. Like, you know, our category and our market situation was very early back then as well. Like it was a lot of the things that, you know, are true today were not as true back then around the technologies you can use to build things quickly, the development of some channels, like just a bunch of things have changed. So anyways, that's that for those reasons and more, that's, that's why I was, um, uh, I took, I took my time on deciding to bring in uh, uh, institutional capital. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing you did that sounds counterintuitive was to actually create a competitor to FreshBooks in secret, and I find this super fascinating. You called this competitor Bill Spring. So tell us, why did you create a secret competitor company? Well, there are, there are a few reasons why. Um, first, we decided, hey, the market, like we started, as I say, in 2003, and a lot had happened since then. You know, for example, smart devices, you know, an iPhone or Android, you know, were not a thing when we started, and they were very much a thing by the time uh, uh, we were, we were talking and thinking about this. And so we had a bunch of what I would call design debt and technical debt that needed addressing. And this is a classic thing with a software company is, okay, we need to replatform or something like this. And, you know, I would, my counsel, anybody would be like, don't replatform, do everything you can not to. But for the for a variety of reasons, mostly around design debt and wanting to set up the next 10 and 20 years uh, and the way our technology was working, we're it just didn't have good architecture. The front end and the back end were too too intermingled. We determined that okay, we 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 really ought to do this for the long run, and so that's what we did. Is we went and replatformed. But then once you start doing that, it's a very risky project. It takes a large amount of time, and you know I always saw these new software releases from companies. You know half the time the software just got worse, right? And that's just depressing. So when you go from Windows XP to Windows Vista, that was not an improvement. <laughs> that was that was a step backwards. And so, uh, so I wanted I, I wanted to figure out well, how do we know if the software is actually better? Um, how would we empirically know? And so that was one thing. And then I also uh, started to realize that if you have your name brand on something, people are afraid to take risks. You know, they won't be as creative and adventurous and all these kinds of things. And so we, um, what we decided to do is basically incubate and create a, a, uh, a second uh, company. And we, we competed with ourselves. We literally bought like AdWords for the new company and acquired customers for it. And until, you know, one day we got a phone call and we got as a FreshBooks customer calling into customer service saying, hey, you know what? <clears throat> I'm leaving you guys. I'm going to this new company called Bill Spring. Uh, and that was the name of the company. And that was the day we were like, okay, I think we're on to something. <laughs> and uh, we, we then, uh, not too long after that, we acquired Bill Spring and brought it under the FreshBooks banner and made it uh, the, new, the new offering at FreshBooks. My goodness, that is genius. 
that is, I've never ever heard anyone do do something like that actually execute but that's yeah just makes a lot of sense when you talk it through and one other thing I would like to cover that almost led to the downfall of your business is that you doubted yourselves too much and you also said previously that you rebuilt the entire FreshBooks platform as well, which I think was over a two and a half year endeavor. So how do you embrace things like imposter syndrome and fear as a founder? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a long and separate topic. But if you think about imposter syndrome as, as you're leading a company, and this is true for anyone in their career at various steps, and, and certainly for a lot of founding CEOs, I think you know, founding CEOs have, have mixed reputations <laughs> Uh, but one, one of the things uh, that is hard to fathom is the many multitude of dimensions upon which they're trying to solve problems at the same time. And oftentimes, especially the younger ones, like I was, and like a lot of the ones you certainly hear about in technology these days, is it, it didn't necessarily have a lot of experience in industry or anything like that before to build up their their capability set. So doing everything almost for the first time. And so if you're you know, not basically completely out of touch with reality in that situation, then you would start to say, you'd start to probably doubt yourself and wonder like, hey, I'm this little voice in your head saying maybe, you know, I don't know, seeding doubts, like maybe what, you know, why, why are people following me, <laughs> right? You know, how do I know this is the way forward? Uh, those kinds of things. And I just, I think those are very natural Imposter syndrome to me is something everybody has to contend with. And, you know, my, my counsel for somebody who's dealing with those kinds of thoughts is just to observe them and accept them and then, and then just move on. And that's, you know, that sounds easy. It's much, much harder to do because a lot of cases you're completely beholden by these thoughts and can't even extricate yourself from them. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, what lots of people don't know is there's lots of really successful people out there who you know, they just like to get themselves into a place where they don't know, and it's uncertain. And these are reasonable questions. I mean, if you think Elon Musk literally has all the answers, you know, I would, I would contest that, but I think he, he likes being uncertain and trying to figure it out along the way. And uh, he's not going to get it right every time, but, but I think that's the nature of entrepreneurship. And I think more than anything, it's the nature of personal growth. And so uh, for these reasons and more, I just, yeah, I, I think it's just something to be embraced and accepted. And it, it's kind of a gift when you think about it. It's trying to motivate you to be better. So don't be afraid of it. Try and channel it and, uh, and continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good to hear. And these lessons were all from the early days. You said earlier around 2006. So one final question before we jump into our rapid fire fast five challenge. Any more recent lessons on how to not kill your SaaS business now that you're a much bigger company than you were back then? Well, I, I, I mean, first of all, I think we, we did actually, that the article I wrote, The Seven Ways, was a long time ago. And then uh, some of the more recent examples, Bill Spring was kind of 2016, 2018 sort of time frame. So that's, that's a little newer. Uh, imposter syndrome is kind of a thread throughout. Uh, so so I, think we, I think we've covered a lot of good ground there. Uh, in terms of recency, uh, you know, I, I would just say, hey, we've started to now contest with some, some, some other challenges, which is, 
you know, we were very good in touchless channels and, and developing new sales channels and go to markets as a, most SaaS businesses will get most of their growth and most of their business through one channel and starting to have multiple channels that really work for you is part of the, the growth effort. And it's not easy to do. And so I think, uh, you know, the question is, so that's one thing I'd say, hey, to not do too fast is to try and do every channel. If you have one that's scaling, stick with it for like, I don't know, like 10 years. <laughs> uh, but then somewhere along the line, you do need to start thinking about, well, how do I, how do I get the next one going? And, and uh, I, I think a, a good and important lesson there is, is not to kill it before it's had a chance. Uh, we came from the internet marketing background. You know, I turn on the ads and Google, the results are happening tomorrow. You have this really serious expectation of a channel being developed quickly, knowing what's happening empirically really fast. Something like a sales channel takes you know, probably years to develop and nurture. And you need to think about investing very differently to develop a channel like that. And we had a variety of things that over the years we started and stopped because the results didn't come the way we expected them on the time frame. Uh, and as opposed to just maybe simmering the investment a little or really the expectations and letting the channel develop, uh, I, I think is, um, I, I just think a really good lesson. You can kill a lot of good business, business initiatives by trying to get them you know, ready in 12 or 18 or sometimes even 24 months. And the question is, how can you incubate it long enough that it can succeed long enough uh, that it can actually start to get scale? Uh, and that's, uh, I think that's a, a special and precious thing, um, you know, and, and it's hard to do. Yeah, this is really good advice. And I think a very common challenge facing many SaaS companies, particularly if they've been built through a touchless self-serve funnel to then go and layer on a sales assisted funnel on top. And how do you do that? But I think also the other way I've spoken to a lot of SaaS founders and marketers who've traditionally been sales assisted, who then actually want to complement that with a touchless self-serve funnel. And that's also very challenging because you can run into situations where all of a sudden your sales team are competing against the website where you have a lower price and you need to figure out the whole pricing packaging and, and positioning. So yeah, I think really good to hear that advice on some more recent lessons. And I have to say, Mike, this was super good, but we could now move to our closing questions and our fast five challenge. So to wrap things up, I will ask five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. First question. Okay. What is the one book you would recommend others to read? I, I mean, as an entrepreneur, the one I, I generally recommend is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. I think there are lots of people out there, and it may not be your audience so much, but if you're just getting started and trying to figure out how to fit the pieces together at the start of a company, uh, I think it just gives you a really good window into how to think about building your team and kind of organizing and orienting your, your, your operations over time. Awesome. Second question, a SaaS company you love and why? I, I will give a shout out to uh, Nathan Berry over at CoverKit. It's not something I use a bunch, but he's doing some really interesting things on the marketing uh, thing. And I, I just love the story of the company uh, and the founder there. So uh, maybe, maybe just uh, for, for marketers who haven't checked out CoverKit, uh, give it a look. Awesome. Third question, Favorite place to learn about marketing online? Well, the truth is I do less of that today, given I've been you know, CEO of a company for like 20 years um, and a little less involved in the marketing and trusting in others now. But yeah, back, I, I, I will just give have some shout outs and props to uh, the folks in the search engine marketing, search engine marketing land and, and those kinds of communities. Um, 
were, uh, were, were helpful to me back in the day. Love it. Fourth question, most important growth metric. It's complicated, <clears throat> not straightforward. Um, so I, it really depends on your company and your stage, right? And what you're trying to accomplish. So I, I don't think there's one ring to rule them all. I think the trick is to figure out where are we and what's appropriate now and what should we be using to govern progress. Uh, and I think if you can answer those questions, you can probably come up with a metric uh, and just be thoughtful about it. Awesome. And best piece of advice for fellow SaaS founders? I, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple, but let's go with this one. Every problem is a people problem. Every solution is a people solution. It, it's all about the people on your team. Uh, and so that includes, you know, the investors you bring around you, certainly uh, the, ex the executive team and the people you hire. And so just just be thoughtful, don't compromise and, and trust your gut. Awesome. Love it. Well, Mike, I have to say this was absolutely amazing. And thank you so much for coming on the Growth of Podcast. You are most welcome. That was Mike McDermott on how to not kill your SaaS business. So thank you so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as ever, you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth Hub Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are Biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers.